Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show. I am Diane Kennedy along with my co-host and co-author, Rebecca Banks, and we are here this evening with Dr. Fred Volkmar. And tonight we are going to be continuing our conversation on autism spectrum disorders and the DSM-5. Our leading expert and best-selling author, Dr. Volkmar, is the director of the Yale Child Development Center. Dr. Volkmar will address tonight our overall rates of autism, the one in 88 that we're all um, so familiar with and so much controversy surrounding those numbers. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to uh, talk about some of the likely effects that the proposed changes to the autism category in DSM-5 will have on this group. Dr. Volkmar's views about the impact of the new criteria on the high-functioning population continue to generate much controversy and uh, conversation in the field of autism, and we are very excited um, to have him this evening. Just a little background on Dr. Volkmar. If you haven't heard his name or understand exactly how um, profoundly um, just profoundly uh, wise this gentleman is in the autism world. He is a renowned expert on autism and other childhood mental disorders. He's a professor of child psychiatry, pediatrics, and psychology at Yale University. He also directs Yale's Child's Child's Study Center. He is the chief of child psychiatry at Yale New Haven Hospital. He has a long-standing interest in the assessment and classification of autism and related disorders. He was the coordinator of the International Field Trial for Autism and Related Disorders and is the primary author of the DSM-4 Autism and Pervasive Developmental Disorders section. He's also the author of several hundred scientific papers and chapters, as well as a number of books, including his latest book, A Practical Guide to Autism, What Every Parent, Family Member, and Teacher Needs to Know. Uh, also Asperger syndrome, healthcare for children, the, and on the autism spectrum, and several other titles. We welcome uh, Dr. Volkmar this evening. Dr. Volkmar, so good to have you here. Thanks very much. And as we start out tonight, uh, I'm going to turn it over to my co-host Rebecca, and she is going to um, start us off with um, some wonderful questions that we have directed for Dr. Volkmar, and we'll get right to the discussion. Rebecca. And before we begin, I want to remind our listeners that the tweet chat is open. The chat Thank room you. is. Um, 
I don't know if you want to give the address or if it's uh, out there, but I just want to let them know. Come on in and join us. Um, Dr. Volkmar, thank you for taking your time to be with us. And I want to start off talking about the populations and autism before we get into um, how the changes in DSM will likely affect um, autism as a disorder. There's a lot of disagreement about what constitutes the largest population. And um, in terms of how these changes in DSM-5 might affect the high-functioning, I'd like to establish what part of the 1 in 88 may actually be the high-functioning population. We found, um, Diane and I have found statistics from as back as far, well, as far back as 2004 that suggest as many as two-thirds of autism diagnoses are in the high-functioning population. Can you shed some insight into what percentage of autism cases may actually be high-functioning and why perhaps... Uh, there's not more attention given to that that population. Well, I think there's a couple reasons, and um, you know, the, the probably ask the college professor a question to get a long answer. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Uh, it's interesting. If you you know, you have to keep in mind a couple of things. One is autism was not actually officially recognized as a diagnosis until 1980 in this country. So, although it had been recognized in the 1940s by Leo O'Connor. Uh, there was no official recognition until 1980, which meant that before 1980, children were called all kinds of things. Uh, they commonly were thought to have schizophrenia, which not, we now know is not right at all. And so th that's kind of where the, the, the field came from in 1980. There was an attempt in 1980 to come up with a new definition for what was then called DSM-3, the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and that manual actually revolutionized uh, certainly research in child psychiatry as well as in adult psychiatry. They included a definition of autism that was very much focused on kind of classical, I would say hardcore, Connors autism. Uh, so the criteria were very much around oh, things like pervasive unresponsiveness to other people. It was very, it was a very stringent definition. In response to that, there were changes made that actually, in some ways, loosened the definition, uh, but they especially seemed to loosen it among the more cognitively impaired, interestingly enough. With DSM-IV, we were struggling with this, and there was a whole process with DSM-IV, and we were trying to come up with a definition that worked pretty well regardless of um, IQ level. And we wanted a system that worked well for younger children as well as for older children and adults, and so, and we also, to complicate life even more, we're doing this in coordination with the international diagnostic system, something called ICD, so that we were trying to juggle lots of different balls, and we came up with a definition which worked well enough kind of across both age and levels of cognitive ability disability. And that was the definition for kind of classical autism. So we were already expanding somewhat in terms of getting into more cognitively able kids. We also, for the first time, included Asperger's as its own diagnostic label, which we can talk more about if you're interested in. But for all those reasons, there's good reason to think that a big chunk of what today we're seeing as part of the, what is going to be called the autism spectrum, if it still exists in the usual way, uh, is among the more cognitively able children. To complicate life even further, <laughs> as if it weren't complicated enough already, People have increasingly talked about autism spectrum 
meaning not just for classical Connors autism, but the broader spectrum of social emotional difficulties, so that they've really adopted the concept that Lorna Wing was talking about and kind of broadened the category. And then finally, as a complication, um, one of the things that we know has happened, even with more classical autism, is that with earlier diagnosis and intervention, outcome is much better. So that we're seeing kids do better and better. We had a conference just a few months ago for about 200 high school students, their parents and teachers, kids interested in going to college, which is fantastic. But that's a, a new problem that we really wouldn't have had 20 years ago. So all these things make me think that probably there's a fairly large number of uh, people that we're talking about who are more cognitively able, who may or may not sort of fit so neatly into the classical autism. Some of them will fit into what now is called Asperger's. Some of them will fit into this funny category called pervasive developmental disorder, in other words, specified. But I think we're talking about a fairly large group of kids. Okay, as opposed to strictly what used to be classical autism. Right. Okay. Um, well, I just was interested in what you said about DSM-4 attempting to be more inclusive. And um, and as it did that, you said you mentioned Asperger's syndrome was introduced. Um, can you just explain a little bit about perhaps how, since DSM-4 and then TR, and even today, how our understanding of Asperger's may may have uh, changed? Sure. Asperger himself wrote in the uh, 1940s, he published a year after Leo Connor. Uh, the war was on and he was a medical student at the University of Vienna. He didn't know about Connor's work, but he used the same word autism. He actually described a condition, sometimes it gets translated in English as autistic psychopathy. Probably a better translation would be autistic personality disorder. He talked about boys who had horrible trouble forming social groups. They were socially impaired. But in contrast to Connor's description of autism, he said these were boys who talked before they walked, that words were their lifeline. They were verbally rather gifted, even though they were quite socially impaired. Now, this was in kind of stark contrast to what Connor was talking about, children who often didn't talk at all or whose language was typically delayed. So that's an interesting thing to think of from the beginning, that even though both, both people are saying autism, social impairment, they're talking about what sound like two different pathways into this. Uh, Asperger also mentioned these were boys who had more motor troubles usually, but they especially had unusual interests, and he thought these interests were unusual because they were all-encompassing, they interfered with the child's learning in other areas. So the child would know all the trains into and out of Vienna, the 615, stopping at Leipzig and Salzburg, and he made the important point that this interest interfered with the child's learning in other areas and that the family would come to discover their life revolving around the child's special interests. So it, it really interfered and caused distress for the family. And it was interesting there, before Lorna Wing published in 1980 her paper in English, there were a handful of English papers. I think before dsm four came out, there may have been something like 75 scientific papers on Asperger's. Subsequently, my guess is there have been between 1,500 and 2,000. So that uh, whatever else is true, one of the things that DSM-4 did do was dramatically increase interest in the condition. We got into it in DSM-4 partly because the international classification of diseases that we were working with trying to come up with a system that was compatible between both the American and the international version for autism, uh, we included some of the features uh, that had been listed as potential features in ICD-10 for Asperger's. And at the end of the day, after a year's worth of work, 
we sat down to look at our cases. We had about a thousand cases from around the world, twenty some sites, a hundred and some raiders, and lo and behold, we had about fifty cases where the raider in all these spots around the world, we'd asked them to tell us in their best judgment what the kid had, regardless of what the various specific diagnostic criteria were, and about fifty times the person said, We think this is Asperger's. And so all of a sudden we had a very large sample and it was nice because it was from multiple sites. It wasn't just us doing it at Yale, it was people doing it around the world. We said, well, we should look to see if are there any differences, and lo and behold, there were. We compared them to very bright children with autism, and there were significant differences. There were differences in that IQ pattern, as you might expect in terms of the verbal and nonverbal skills. Mm-hmm. But the kids with Asperger's doing better verbally and uh, tend to be the converse for kids with autism. Um, and interestingly enough, the kids with Asperger's also differed from those with um, pervasive developmental disorder, not the way specified, the social difficulties were a little more severe, and they had more. Uh, they had, not surprisingly, the unusual interest, but they had some other troubles as well. So, lo and behold, we had some evidence to say, Jesus should be included. There was then a big debate about including it, and it got included, but with a lot of ambivalence on the part of the higher up, higher ups in the system. So, I think the definition that ended up was. Uh, a funny kind of a compromise for Asperger's. It was not nearly as well done as the one for um, autism, and in fact, they were tweaking it even through the last minute. So that I think that was one of the problems with the definition. That being said, even just including it uh, introduced a lot of interest to the topic, and so I think there's been, a, relatively speaking, an explosion of interest after DSM-4. Well, and I, I, as you were speaking about the verbal skills, one thing I keep going to with the twice exceptional population um, is I, I would just like your opinion on how high IQ and verbal skills um, of that high-functioning Asperger and even what we now call PDD NOS might impact early identification of this high-functioning population because, as you said earlier, that the early identification is is you know leads to better outcomes. Right. But when we have kids with you know exceptional abilities in two domains with the IQ and the verbal skills, how does that affect identification of this population? Well, it's interesting. Asperger himself, Connor thought autism was something people were born with, and that seems to be largely true. Although sometimes parents do report a regression, but almost inevitably parents are worried about their child before the child is two years of age. Kids, on the other hand, with Asperger's, the parents typically aren't worried until the child goes to preschool, and it's because they've been reassured by the child's verbal abilities, even if the child seemed a little motorically clumsy, and um, the child's special interests don't sort of stand out so starkly with uh, adults. However, with peers, they do, and the social difficulties really quickly emerge, so that it's not uncommon for parents not to be worried until four or five. Furthermore, and this was truer in the past than it is today because parents are more sophisticated and know more about this, sometimes you'd see children well into adolescence. I've seen kids as old as college age whose parents had sort of known there was a problem but hadn't really quite put it all together. And often children kind of accumulate a range of labels, uh, typically Mm -hmm. attention deficit disorder, a whole range of other things. But then when somebody steps back and realizes, yes, the child talks very well, but you know what, he's not really communicating very well. And then that's kind of when people start thinking more about the autism spectrum and Asperger's. And also with females, Dr. Volkmar, don't you think that's also an area 
that makes um, early di- diagnosis a little bit more difficult. And gr- girls are a little more complicated. I think as uh, Lorna Wing, uh, I think it was Lorna Wing, was commenting on uh, in one of the earlier broadcasts. It can be a little trickier in girls because it's often not quite so f- uh, flagrant. One of my favorite stories from a few years ago was watching one of our psychology trainees who was giving an IQ test, and part of the test had a had to do with this. Was I was watching from behind a mirror with a parent. And um, the psychologist was showing the child this upside-down triangle for some reason. And the child says, oh, that's a Ventnor, this nice little girl. And so the psychologist says, yes, thank you very much, and gets her back to the task. And I caught up with the psychologist when she came out of the room. I said, go back and ask her what a Ventnor was. And so the little girl pulls out her book of cows. It turns out there's a kind of cow that has an upside-down triangle on its flank, essentially. <laughs> and, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily have known that unless you probed a little bit. And so uh, sometimes with girls, it can be more subtle. Uh, girls are probably somewhat less likely to be affected, but they're also less likely to be studied because people don't appreciate it so much. So that it's, it is a bit of a, an interesting tension. And um, I would just am curious, too, in terms of if the size of autism, um, the population, if a majority of the cases fall in this higher-functioning um percentage or, or group, how do you think this should inform or even transform autism research and diagnosis? Because well, so, there's a lot of emphasis on the on still on the cognitively impaired. So again, let me point out that you very quickly jumped from autism to autism spectrum, but without saying that. And I think that's important to realize. that. And okay. there's good reason to think genetically that it may all be interrelated. And even with the sort of classical autism, many of those children, not necessarily all, but many of them have IQs in the in the normal range. So that um, it's a very complicated issue. And I think one of the problems is, um, and people sometimes fixate so much on the labels, they kind of forget what the labels are for and about. And the labels have to do with helping people get services when they need it. So there's the clinical side. The labels also in the clinical side have to do with quickly conveying information to other folks. And it's not, not telling you everything about the child. If you say, I, there's a six-year-old boy in my class with Asperger's, it would tell me right away that there's a child who seems maybe in some ways very bright, but who has some very obvious social difficulties, and I'm going to expect a certain constellation of things. That would be a little different than telling me you had a six-year-old with Asperger's. Autism spectrum tells me essentially that there's a significant social impairment of some kind, but it doesn't tell me so much about some of the other things. So that these labels have their different uses clinically. They also have uses for research, which is one of the funny tensions, because one of the things is we, if we can do a good job of defining something, it's more likely to be studied. And I think one of the problems is so much of the research has focused very discreetly on the most well-defined population, which is more classical autism. And studies on more typical autism vastly outnumber studies on all the rest of the condition put together. Thank you. If I, if I may tail in on that question there, and I know some of the things that we have read following your work, um, when when going back to DSM four for a moment, when you um, between four and and the text revision, when um, after Asperger was first put in 
the DSM. Did you notice, were, was it unexpected, the amount of um, of the population, the, the large volume of the population you found to actually be PDD, NOS, and Asperger's syndrome? The PDD, NOS, I think we actually had always appreciated there were a fairly large, fairly large number of children. In some funny way, this antedates even the DSM-3 a lady in Boston, Beata Rock, in the 1940s talked about so-called atypical personality development or atypical children. She was talking about children who had social difficulties, often with an association with emotional problems. So it has its kind of own history really antedating DSM. And I think many of us knew for many years that in terms of people with social problems but who didn't sort of neatly fit into the autism category, there was a fairly large group. The Asperger's was a bit more of a surprise, partly because of the interest it generated, I think, on the part of uh, the lay media as well, obviously also as parents. May I follow up really fast and ask you a question? Um, I know know I'm jumping to DSM-5, but as you talk about PDD-NOS, which is slated to disappear, um, do you think that the addition of a social communication disorder and um, co-morbid uh, diagnoses of, of whatever mood or attentional disorders may impact that population will allow them to get the services that they need. I mean, they already have trouble accessing those services. Well, that's, and that is indeed a very much a worry, and I think Lorna Wing and uh, her colleague, uh, Dr. Gould, spoke about this, that one of the worries is, you know, um, the book like a book like DSM is actually intended for two purposes. It's both used clinically, but it's also used for research. The ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases, which is its, basically its international competitor, at the moment they're essentially the same for autism and Asperger's. Uh, that won't be the same with DSM-5 as far as we can tell, but we don't totally know. But with ICD-10, they have a different approach. They have one book, which are research guidelines for research studies, and they have another book that are clinical descriptions. So it's more of a narrative about this is what autism looks like. That book is for general practitioners to use. So that when you're out there and you, you know, you've never seen a child with autism before, you can pull down a book that has some kind of narrative to help you kind of put it in context. And I think you have to keep in mind that there are these two purposes of diagnosis among others. But the main ones are having to do with service. And in this country, we have a written constitution and a ton of lawyers, so there's a lot of emphasis on rules and regulations. And I worry, I hope I'm wrong, but I worry that any excuse for some school districts to avoid giving service if they can help it, um, it's just an open it's an open road, uh, sadly. So that um, I, I do worry for, for the kids who have the less classical autism that they're the ones who will probably lose uh, the most in terms of services. And again, the problem is not that they couldn't necessarily get labels, but they may have seven or eight labels that don't do such a good job as conveying more immediately what an autism spectrum label uh, would convey. Thanks. And and on that note, I guess a word we haven't used here that goes in line with what we're talking about is what percentage would you say, or do you do you have an opinion about? Um, diagnostic substitution, we hear that word and it seems to be a source of controversy versus are are increasing numbers of autism actually um, something other than diagnostic substitution or how much of what we see as the numbers climb would you say could potentially be a case of diagnostic substitution? There's almost certainly some of that and it's 
I mean, it also is quite sensible. Keep in mind a couple of things. One is, in fairness, the diagnostic substitution business, uh, in its strictest sense, it means you have a choice of four or five labels, all of which are true. You have anxiety problems, yes. You have depression, yes. You have attentional issues, yes. You have a social vulnerability, maybe Asperger's, yes. Well, Asperger's kind of catches all that stuff. And um, maybe that would be a better label in terms of the school, maybe to get services. However, in some states, it's really only autism that gets your services. So that um, there's the consideration for the schools where the labels are somewhat different than the labels that medical professionals, psychologists, mental health professionals use. So schools have labels like other health impaired, which as a doctor I would never use. What's that mean? But right. that means, it means something for the school. <clears throat> so that you have to keep that in mind. And also there's the human tendency, if you can get something that will get your child more services and you feel like it ain't going to hurt, my gosh, why not go for it? So that that's part of it. Now, again, I think one of the complexities is with dsm 4 and ISD-10, we know that we or we hoped we were doing a better job of picking up more able kids, and I think we have, and we've also increased public awareness so that one of the problems is we also don't know how much of what seems to be an apparent increase is both a function of our changing the approach to diagnosis, but also how much of it is people paying attention to kids in the past they wouldn't have thought for more than one second about. But now they go back to think, oh, geez, could this be autism or autism spectrum or Asperger's? And then there's finally, there could be some potential for a small actual true increase. Uh, genetically speaking, there's a couple of studies that have come out to suggest that, and it's a complicated, very interesting story, but it has to do with fathers being older. So, in essence, we need to be very cautious about um, jumping to conclusions on either side of that discussion. I would say yes, yes. Of saying that it's all diagnostic substitution or that it's all um, an increase. Correct. Okay. As we as we move on here to um, as we mentioned the new uh, (coughs) diagnostic manual due out next year that has been just a tremendous source of controversy both in the in the public world and in the professional world. I know on the Coffee Clatch, Marian Russo has interviewed um, Alan Francis of DSM-4 several times, and he's very outspoken about um, about the manual as a whole and about some of the procedures being done to, to revamp it, and he has a lot of serious question about that. But as we specifically look at autism, as we discussed with um, Dr. Wing and Dr. Gould last week, the, the proposed changes in in essence, boil down to three things, and that is uh, changing everything into one, as we mentioned, collapsing all forms of autism into a single autism spectrum disorder with a checklist of criteria coupled with severity ratings in social communication, restricted interest, and repetitive behaviors, something Dr. Wing and Dr. Gould are in favor of. Um, They had mentioned for their entire career, this is what they have been advocating towards. It's the other two that get a little trickier than that. Uh, by eliminating the diagnosis of Asperger disorder, that brings up a whole a whole new host of, of problems. And the third one, it seemed to be they had the most difficulty with, and we'd love for you to weigh in on it, and that is the creation of a new disorder and spinning apart from autism spectrum disorder a new disorder called social communication disorder with a warning um, to rule out autism spectrum disorder and um, 
and to want to claim that this could be a standalone disorder as a primary impairment or could co-occur with um, with other disorders. Can can you give us just a little brief how you feel about each of those three things? Uh, let's see. Sure, if I can if I can remember to do it in order. Um, so um, it's interesting. I, I listened to uh, the interview with Dr. Wing and Dr. Gold, and, and many of the things they say I agree with. And I think in some ways you could, I mean, in retrospect, back in 1980, you know, they coined this funny term pervasive developmental disorder just to have a kind of a, a term to put autism in, to have a category of disorders. It's like apples and oranges are a kind of fruit. Well, pervasive developmental disorder had no previous history. They were just coming up with something. Um, to be able to basically brand it. And um, I think in retrospect, it would have been better back then to say autism and related conditions or autism spectrum disorder. So I have absolutely no objection to that. I also have absolutely no objection to changing things where you can show that something needs to be changed and you have good data for it. And I think there are some of the categories in DSM, things that we know more about than we used to 20 years ago, that we absolutely we should, we should change and update. I think the question is, how much of this is really uh, an upheaval versus keeping things the same. And I've heard people argue both sides of it. I've heard some people, and I have very good friends who are on the, the DSM committee, and some people have said, well, it's not going to change anything. And then I'm saying, well, then why are you messing with it if it's not going to change anything? And then other people say, well, yes, we're, gonna, we're really going to sort of you know, tighten up the diagnosis. And then I'm thinking, well, what's that mean? Um, because, uh, as, as you point out, autism spectrum, it sort of implies, it's like going to the Chinese restaurant and ordering Happy Family, which has you know beef and chicken and shrimp. It sounds like everything's going to be included, right? And in reality, in fact, what my worry is, and I hope I'm wrong, but my worry is that the autism spectrum disorder is really more honing in on kind of classical autism, especially classical autism with intellectual disability or what used to be called mental retardation. So that's the kind of the, the worry about the spectrum. And then on the other side, having eliminated throughout DSM the subthreshold categories, which I think unfortunately is probably a mistake because people need service even when they don't necessarily when they haven't necessarily read the books and or precisely fit the syndrome definitions. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, at first blush, what you hear and you think, oh well, maybe this is the new PDDNOS, that in fact is not what it's intended to be. It's intended, as I think Lorna Wing was saying to be something more about children with language problems who also have a little bit of social difficulty. And uh, it's a funny category because there's very little work on it, and um, it's not meant to be analogous to the PDDOS category. And if I could ask you, do you mind weighing in on the severity measures? Because Drs. Wing and Gould last week were talking about the vague language that identifies the 1, 2, and 3 levels. And what's your opinion on, on this? I understand it's a nod toward dimensional um, diagnosis, but at the same time, do you think it's apt to get us into more trouble? Well, of course, ultimately all these things are empirical questions and we need research, mm -hmm. and one of the troubles is that I, I'm just not yet seeing all the research that's out there. And <clears throat> again, I think one of the things that's been a little different this time than last time was there was a, quite a long process last time before we even got into field trials with DSM of 
looking at the issues of commissioning papers, and there was a lot of stuff that was published. And so people, there were uh, uh, debates and the whole you know, discussions. And the process has been a little different this time. I think people have tried, and I give them points for trying, but the process is sufficiently different that I think there probably hasn't been essentially uh, sufficient empirical work. It's similar to the social communication disorder thing. It sort of seems to come out of nowhere with very little data. And you think, well, um, what are we supposed to do with this? So that I think that's been a, an issue. And I think one of the things that, again, when we published our study on uh, DSM-5 uh, a couple of months ago, and I'd presented it earlier, and it got some press, I think, in the New York Times, that um, you know that was only that was one study. I wouldn't want to oversell one study, but there now have been a number of studies. Um, I think at last count, something like five or six, sort of finding rather similar or sort of converging things using somewhat different methods and samples. So it is a worry that we're going to really substantially change how we. Uh, think about the diagnosis. So this is not, sadly, just a problem with autism. It's a problem with other conditions in DSM as well. The worry, I think, in, on balance for, in many cases is a broadening of categories. Autism, it's the narrowing. But in all these things, it, one has to sort of step back and say, why are we radically changing things in any direction without extremely good data? That's right. And oh. in a question, we we brought up a lot. We we did quite an extensive search in trying to tease out, um, at least for a layman's guide to the DSM, the issue of comorbidity. And when we talk about adding this other disorder, it seems to us, and we we'd love to hear your opinion on that, that this is just going to further compound that issue because we're just we could end up making that separate disorder, but yet tying it back to to uh, other things and making it just another piece of the comorbidity merry-go-round. Well, and again, that's a f um, it's, that's one of the perplexing problems in all of psychiatric diagnosis is this problem of so-called comorbidity. And um, there are a couple of people have written about this very uh, nicely. Michael Rudder in England is probably the one who's mm -hmm. been the most prominent. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ICD takes a somewhat different approach than DSM. It basically discourages comorbidity. It um, wants you to have Asperger's. Well, that's it. So then you have to make a very strong case for other things, whereas the American system has been more the let a thousand flowers bloom model. And so it encourages, and it sadly, especially with the insurance pressures in this country, uh, almost at times it seems or feels like you get more labels to be able to get more medications. And so it's a whole somewhat crazy package. And the reality is, of course, that it's complicated, and the complication is having some problem, especially if it's a developmental problem, whether it's autism or Asperger's, whether it's a developmental language disorder, whether it's a learning difficulty, whether it's attention deficit disorder, or intellectual disability, mental retardation. All those things are only going to make you more likely to have some, be more at risk for other troubles. Mental retardation, intellectual disability is a good example. For many years, people acted as if, well, you have mental retardation, that's it, no more, no other diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Well, and then somebody had the great idea of thinking, well, let's interview the people with mild cognitive impairment who are somewhat older that we can use the usual kind of rating scales and checklists with, and by gosh, they had four to five-fold rates of mental disorders over the general population. And it was not just scattered across the board. It was certain kinds of mental disorders. So that it's clear that having one problem, especially a developmental problem, makes you more at risk for other problems. Then the question is, what's the best way to get your head around you know, mm -hmm. sort of 
putting this all together in a package, which is hopefully the reason you see a very good doctor because that's what they're supposed to do. Well, may I ask you then, with the DSM and the thousand flowers blooming, so to speak, <laughs> would a shift toward back, remember the paradigm shift between DSM-2 and DSM-3 was to break down the larger syndromes into smaller discrete categories. Would it not help clinicians perhaps to have more of a guidebook of larger syndromes with with the clusters that you're described that you've described um would would that not serve the at, at the clinical level the parents and the clinicians more effectively um th- this turns out to be a complicated answer partly because um the DSM2 remember but at that point in time autism was part of childhood schizophrenia which made no sense right so right. you had a big nice you had a nice big category it just was wrong. <laughs> so right. that, I was just um, thinking in terms of the larger system itself. Right, but and, uh, and, and the, tr- the other trouble is, I mean, and, and again, these are not simple issues to get into. The other problem with DSM two was that it was somewhat theoretical, and by mm-hmm. theoretical, which is one of the problems when you get into the big category pictures, is sort of how do we put all this? I mean, if you're not careful, you end up imposing theory, and the trouble with the theory. Uh, which is not a bad thing in science at all because it guides much of our work. But when you get into the sort of, into the, in terms of the nomenclature of things, it ends up driving things in funny ways. And one of the things I think we've learned from DSM-3 is the importance of having kind of objective things that people can reliably agree on. And again, I think back to DSM-5, one of the things we'll want to see, and truly in the end of the day, is this making people better at agreeing. Uh, now again, it, it may you know you can also uh, I should point out that you can help people agree on the sort of more classical cases. In my view, that's not such a great accomplishment. That's the easiest thing to do. The problem <laughs> is sort of people whose troubles don't sort of neatly fall into the categories. And I think that's what you're talking about, and that's an area that we should really think more about. And that would be more of a dimensional across categorical approach. To looking at a diagnosis. Uh, could be, doesn't have to be. And actually, and right. again, you know, when you think about it, there's kind of a dimensional approaches, and those, even with the categorical systems, things like um, level, high, high blood pressure, you know, blood pressure is on a continuum. We draw a sort of line in the sand and say, okay, you're systolic and you're diastolic, this is high blood pressure. Well, that's, you know, you're taking a dimension and sort of marketing exactly where you think the best data are in terms of below this level there's no problem, above this level you're at risk for heart attack and stroke, et cetera, et cetera. So that uh, the two things can be done nicely together. And back to your question about the uh, seven of the dimensions, I think, as Lorna and uh, Judith were pointing out, one of the questions is how well is this actually going to work in practice? In theory, it's not a bad idea at all. Like in theory, the autism spectrum is not a bad idea at all. I think the worry is in the reality uh, how does it really play out? And one last follow-up, and it, it's about the social communication disorder. Um, you mentioned, too, that we tend to be shifting more to back toward intellectual disability with autism. Even as we hang, um, DSM-5 seems to make the second criteria, besides the social communication challenges, as the rip- the repeated restricted interests and behaviors and in the higher functioning population, as we were talking before the show, Dr. Volkmar, can't those repetitions be hidden in the thought patterns rather than necessarily obvious repeated patterns of behavior? 
Well, and again, you have to look at exactly how the criteria are worded. Um, and if it includes things like unusual interest, circumscribed interest, potentially, yes. If it's very much focused on the behavior, and that's often a big push with these things because that's what people, if the big push is to see what you can agree on, the big push is then to look at what you can see and observe. Right. And so it's harder then to make inferences about what people are thinking or feeling. And the trouble with that, of course, is that many of us went into the business of being psychologists or psychiatrists because we're interested in what people think and feel. So that um, it's a it's a funny funny dialectic to get into. And I'm sorry, Becky. Did you were you finished? With no, no, no. Questions? I just was thinking about um, how the challenge of diagnosing some of the the you know the highly verbal. Um, high IQ kids who might have um, might be diagnosed with OCD, but and there there are forms of OCD that are thought patterns, the bad thinking that may not necessarily be acted out through compulsive behaviors that make it more challenging to diagnose um, in in the higher functioning population. And so that was a concern that that um, we were speaking of earlier. So that's what I was trying to get him to comment on, and I appreciate it. He did. One last question I have here is, um, as we previously asked Dr. Wing and Gould about their opinions about the current gold standard for screening and diagnostic tools, the ADOS and the ADIR, Dr. Lord, who was instrumental in designing these tools, states that the ADIR the ADIR, the revised version, has been shown to be insensitive to diagnosing high-functioning children with autism. It was a great source of frustration, she stated. If um, if the current tool already misses this uh, large, such a large number of high-functioning children, yet these changes are going to be more restrictive, what can we do to help our twice-exceptional children, those with high IQs and high-functioning autism, to be recognized or for a clinician to make that judgment? Well, you're raising a very interesting point, and it's um, again, it's interesting. I mean, the, first of all, the ADI, which is interview with parents, and the ADOS, which is something you do with the child or the person, are wonderful instruments. They're actually they've been extremely well designed. They were designed originally for use in genetic studies because then I was involved in uh, still am in one of these ongoing genetic studies where they're really used so around the world people can be sure that they're consistent in how they approach the diagnosis. And for genetics, that's very important because if you have wildly different views, it's a problem. But it's for research, which means that you really are going to focus on kind of the most, you know, classical stringent cases, which, again, it's perfectly fine. It's, you know, very straightforward. And they can be used uh, in clinical work, and they are used in clinical work. They do require a fair amount of training. One of my worries about taking items out of context would be like taking an IQ item out of context and then generalizing that, well, this is represent a major portion of IQ when you've only got one or two items, that uh, when somebody who's never seen a child with autism or has very little experience is confronted with criteria that have been pulled from a test of any kind, even a good test, like the ADI and the ADOS, uh, without the training on how to, you know, what that item means in the context of the test, there is some potential worry about that. And this is not just for autism and DSM-5. I think there has been a, an attempt, in part justifiable and in part, I think, a little questionable, to think about how we can ally these criteria with test scales, et cetera, et cetera. 
and it's, it has a funny kind of a tail wagging the dog aspect because often the tests were set up to help validate the sort of categorical diagnostic things that were there in the first place, if you can find that. And now mm-hmm. we're kind of going to the tests to validate what we sort of how they started out. So it's a funny, somewhat circular business. But I worry that we really need um, work in the real world with people using these things who haven't had so much experience. We know when we did DSM-4 that, um, and we published a paper on this, people who were very experienced did a reasonably good job of agreeing on autism within the same site, not across sites, but within the same site. People who were less experienced didn't do so well, but if you force them to use DSM slash ICD, their agreement got much better, which is just what you want. Um, You're not going to be able to mandate you know, things being perfect, it's an imperfect world. But what you do want is to provide something that's really going to help people who need a little help in terms of getting a better handle on what this means. And so I think that's kind of a worry that, um, you know, and you can strive for reliability at the point of it's being meaningless. We have to make something so very rare that you, you know, you can always agree on it that it almost never happens. Uh, and so that's not such a challenge. The challenge is thinking about things like autism or Asperger's, where there's really a wide range uh, in terms of age-related issues, syndrome expression issues, IQ issues, uh, so that you have to sort of take a really big step back to get your head around what are the key conceptual things and then what can you show empirically. Because there are some things that you think of empirically would work well that just don't seem to. And conversely, there may be some things, one of my favorite items from DSM-4 had to do with children being attached to unusual objects. It works very well for autism, but only for younger children. So it didn't get included. But um, So it's things like that that, you know, it's important to know that there may be diagnostic features that are, you know, missed in one way or the other. So it's, it's, a, it's a real art. It's an art form as well as a science. Well, and I think I think you you definitely have echoed what Dr. Wing and Dr. Gould were extremely passionate about, and that is, um, as Dr. Gould pointed out, that uh, Dr. Wing's most um, important feature of calling something a gold standard was she said it's the clinician themselves who who are the gold standard. In other words, she went on to explain that it is their experience and their knowledge of understanding the the um the symptoms as you as you mentioned of seeing the impairment as a whole rather than just being trained by a tool to try and and kind of mold what you're seeing to the tool but understanding if you're educated in in what this is then you become the gold standard and that that experience and wisdom she stated was really the the premier of of what needed to be done. Yeah, I think that is a very good. And again, the the assessment tools certainly have their place, especially for research purposes. As mm-hmm. a clinical matter, you want somebody who knows what they're up to. And by the right. time you've seen a thousand or two thousand children, you get much better at knowing. Uh, which is, you know, a t- I mean, it's a testament to the fact that that's why people get expert in things. You, the more knowledge you have, the more experience you have. As a general rule, <laughs> you tend to get better at at doing things. 
And and something that they pointed out, and I don't know if how familiar you are with um, with a tool that that they're using overseas, their Disco. And the the thing that caught our attention was, as we talked to researchers and experts in the gifted world who do a lot of testing and and are looking for these areas, um, the the tool that Dr. Wing and Dr. Gould are using seems to encompass both of these worlds. They're looking for strengths and weaknesses, not just the disability itself, because it really is a whole a whole child approach. It really is a whole picture. And there's no question we have some wonderful instruments out there. There's actually quite a range. Also, I think that one of the things, certainly, I mean, our experience seeing children every week with uh, autism and related troubles is that uh, we have multiple specialists involved, so we have people from a range of disciplines, and the the big point is to put something together that talks about strengths and weaknesses, to think about how you can use the strengths to address the weaknesses. It's not just to point out the weaknesses, which parents and often the child will really be aware of. It's to think about how can we come up with a game plan that will help the child you know, go with what they've got and learn and grow in a very effective way. Rebecca, you had a question about, because um, that leads us right to our, to our yeah, last question. Yeah, I know. And, and my brain is still just, um, I'm, I'm thinking everything from confirmatory studies, which the circular pattern that the research calls out that he mentioned, to even now dimensional assessments and how to best identify for children, like um, you were both pointing out, the strengths and the weaknesses and how to use those strengths to minimize the weaknesses. And then all that I, I got stuck on how much... Um, how it differs from state to state in terms of services and provisions for our kids. And so that, you know, in an ideal world, we could all access the same services with the same label, but um, we're just not there yet. But, Dr. Volkmar, um, I would love, you mentioned that you have a Yale Autism course on YouTube, and I'd love for you to explain to our listeners who it's for, um, what they might learn, and um, where to find it. I see YouTube, but... Uh, if you go to if you go to YouTube and type in Autism in Yale, or if you go to iTunes U, um, there's a course. It's actually the course has been taught for about 25 years. It's an undergraduate Yale College course, typically about 20 Yale students a semester. Uh, we started a long time ago, and I think it's probably the oldest one in the country that's still in business. And it's uh, the lecture part of that course. It also has a part where the students go out and work in schools and programs for kids with lower functioning autism and also kids with more higher functioning autism and Asperger's. And so uh, the lectures are a range of things, uh, everything from an introduction and overview that I do. There's a lecture on genetics. There's a lecture on neuroimaging. There's a lecture on behavioral intervention. Another one on speech communication assessment and findings. Uh, another one on psychopharmacology. So they're all there, and they're perfectly free and available. Uh, it's actually in other countries. You can download it in, I think it's up to 51 languages. And it's perfectly free, and you can use it as long as you don't plagiarize it or claim it as your own. Yale has a ton of lawyers, and they'll come after you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very exciting, though, because it sounds like this course addresses so many of the aspects of autism that have emerged through the years, not just autism per se, but, you know, the neurobiology and the psychopharmacology, all the different approaches and perspectives that are offered. Right, and again, I emphasize it's a college course, so it's not a mm-hmm. um, 
It's not meant to be. It's not done for specifically for parents, although many parents uh, are interested. I had a lady from Turkmenistan come up to me at a conference in Sicily last year to say, "Oh, she loved my lecture and something." So that uh, it's great that parents can use it. <laughs> well, and you have another uh, resource for parents that might be more appropriate for the general audiences. It's your recent book that you wrote with your wife, who's a pediatrician, I believe. Right. The Practical Guide to Autism. Um, could you elaborate on some of the tips and perhaps some of the information parents could get from that particular resource? Well, my wife's a general pediatrician, and she's very interested in taking care of kids on the autism spectrum. So we collaborated on this book, which uh, is meant to be a book for parents. It's a trade book, which you think means it's expensive. In fact, it means the opposite. It means it's really cheap. It's probably about $15, $16 on Amazon. And um, it's a fairly thick book, but it's got a lot in it, chapters on babies, school-age children, adolescents, and adults, psychopharmacology, complementary treatments, good resources. Uh, we wanted to point out some tips for parents in terms of things like going to the doctor or the dentist, uh, both of which are important, especially when the child isn't sick, and also how from the doctor's side things they could do to make things go better, common medical problems, a little introduction to behavioral treatments as well as in pharmacological treatments. So we're trying to be comprehensive but keeping it a level where parents can understand but also telling them what we think of our good resources. You probably know that one of the problems these days, if you go to one of the search engines and type in autism, you'll get millions. I think the last time I checked it was 17.5 million hits. Mm. It's hard to know what to do with that. (laughs) And you'll you'll discover very quickly people are claiming cures, they're claiming all kinds of miracles, and uh, and you can't easily sort out what, what is and what isn't real. As a general rule, the EDU and government websites are better. That's not an absolute rule, but it's a general rule. But even there, you get into thousands upon thousands of websites. So uh, everything in that book has been we've checked. We've checked the website. We've checked the reference. And uh, we hope it actually is something that parents can find user-friendly and easy to use. And that is, I believe, we we share the same label, if you will. That's a Wiley publication, am That's I correct? correct? Yep. Okay, okay, yes. We're we're Josie Bass, which is an imprint of Wiley. So we um we certainly will make sure that we um we promote that resource for you as well because that is definitely something that would be very helpful to our parents. Yes, and that's the whole point of this is you know, we go into this partly because we're trying to help children but also obviously parents and families and mm-hmm. uh if we feel like we've done that then we've done our business. Wonderful. Did you have any more questions, Rebecca? Well, I just very quickly, if you don't mind, and this is kind of off off the beaten path, but you mentioned that you have a chapter on um, psychopharmacology, and I wondered if um, you could address a little bit um, some of the the cautions that that perhaps uh, parents should keep in mind before um, they just decide to medicate. Is there a better age is there is I know that that's it, it's child independent, but do you promote a more conservative approach to the use of medications, or um, general, we believe they're a good tool, but that they should be used in conjunction with other therapies? It's a little like what my grandmother said about her sponge cake when it was done. It should be done but not burned, and that you want to be very judicious but sensible. As a general mm-hmm. rule of thumb, uh, people in my perspective profession, child psychiatrists, uh, use medications, but somewhat more cautiously than otherwise, uh, because we also know about the side effects, and we also use often a wider range of medications, so that you have to be very careful. The medications, at least so far, 
have not really addressed the core social problems in autism. So the medication are around other things, attentional issues or anxiety or depression or kind of agitation. So that you want to see, and then as with any medication, including and starting with aspirin and penicillin, you always want to balance the benefit against the possible risks. And uh, anything has a risk, including aspirin and penicillin. Uh, you know, you can, if you're allergic to penicillin, you can die from taking penicillin. So that you really have to be very careful and judicious. That being said, there clearly can be a role for medications in children where you know, people have really given it a good try in terms of doing behavioral and other kinds of interventions, and where the child may be helped to be more engageable in an educational program, which is the ultimate goal. But generally what we're trying to do is everything we possibly can to give the child more resources through learning. Fine. Okay. Wonderful. Well, we thank you so much. Thank for, you so um, much for your time and being here and you're just a wonderful resource and I think very comforting oh, yeah. to parents. Oh, it's um, a pleasure to thank talk you. to you. Okay. We're Good night. we're so Bye. thankful and we will continue to um to make your resources available through our outlets as well and um we look forward to to further comments as we get closer to this release of DSM. We thank you Dr. Volkmar. Bye-bye.